Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As we continue our journey this morning through the book of Matthew, we find ourselves approaching the single greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And of course, we refer to that as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the reason why it's called that is because of the location in which it was delivered. Jesus Christ gives this sermon not actually on a mountaintop. He's not on a mountaintop when he delivers this, but rather a hillside that's called the Mount of Beatitudes, which is located just alongside the Sea of Galilee. And if you were to look up pictures and see kind of the area where Jesus gave this, you'll see that this hillside overlooks the beautiful image of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus Christ delivers this, and it includes, of course, the Beatitudes and includes uh, levels of, of speeches on faithfulness and other things as well. But this morning, we begin this new journey, and I'm going to be honest with you, it is going to take us several weeks into maybe a couple of months to cover. Because how can the single greatest message that's ever been preached be covered in like two or three weeks? And that is this subject of the Sermon on the Mount, a journey that we, that I believe will open our eyes to see the difference between a Christian as defined by mere words and a Christian that is defined according to the Word of God. This morning we begin this journey, and so we take our Bibles this morning and we turn to Matthew chapter 5. And so if you could look at Matthew chapter 5, just wanted to open this up for you. If you do not have a Bible and you don't want to use your phone, that's fine. Or if you don't have a paper copy of a Bible at all, there's a stack of Bibles located on the resource table there. Take that home with you. You don't need to pay anything for it. That is our gift to you. We will order more if we run out. As a matter of fact, I hope we run out soon. That means people are taking them. And so even if you have somebody that you know that doesn't have a Bible that you're sharing the gospel with and they could use one, don't buy one. Um, You can if you want, but obviously there's a free one back there. We want you to be able to have that. But the sermon, really the the topic of our message this morning is not necessarily going to be unpacking the Beatitudes, which is the first section there, but really giving you the background of the sermon as far as focusing on the context, the audience, and everything so that we can gain a general understanding of what God is sharing here through the Sermon on the Mount. As you remember, the purpose of Matthew is to inform the Jews that Jesus Christ came here for a purpose, and that is to establish the kingdom. That was the purpose and the focus of Matthew. And so with that being said, he doesn't focus on all the miracles like what Luke does. He doesn't focus on uh, the other things of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's why Matthew skips around a lot. Matthew focuses on the teachings, primarily the preachings of Jesus. And there's five total discourses that Jesus gives. It's recorded in the book of Matthew, and the Sermon on the Mount is the first one. It's the first one given. Now, This Sermon on the Mount is extremely controversial to the Jewish audience. He ticks off a lot of Jews in delivering this. Matter of fact, it makes them so mad that Matthew chapters 8, really to to chapter 10, right around there, is, is the discussion of the Jews being mad at Jesus, which prompts Jesus to deliver his second discourse, which is found in Matthew chapter 13. And so this Sermon on the Mount not only is a tremendous impact for us, it, it really ruffled a lot of feathers when Jesus Christ delivered it during his earthly ministry. But even by people that are not part of the, uh, the church, so to speak, the true church, the one that, that's not the Catholic church, the genuine uh, believers, even outside of them, those that are within the world have a great respect for the Sermon on the Mount. Our, uh, our, our president, President Harry Truman, once stated, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Our second, our 32nd president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, stated, no greater blessing could come to our land today than the revival of the spirit of religion. And I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't believe that either of these two men were Christians necessarily, but they had a great respect for the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount is so much more than just moral values and mere biblical principles and famous quotes. It is packed full of biblical principles that are designed to transform the Christian life, to form us into the image of Christ. Oswald Chambers, who was a great Christian man, says this, the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from the identification of Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting His way with us. And other than the book of Romans, which is really the foundation of our Christian faith, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most foundational elements of how we ought to behave as Christian citizens. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount or the truths contained in here provide for the Christians the stepping stones to live when it comes to following Christ. What the Father has called us to do and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do, the, the Sermon on the Mount provides the guidestones of what we ought to do in order to obey and glorify Christ. Now, before we dive into this wonderful sermon this morning, it is important for us to gain the proper context. And so the title of our message this morning is this, The Sermon on the Mount, Part 1, An Overview of Christ's Most Famous Sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned earlier, is the first five, uh, five sermon discourses delivered by Jesus, prompting controversy, but it didn't all begin there. We see, first off, this first point that we have to examine, and that is the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the context of what is going on here. Up until this point, Jesus Christ has been faithfully uh, following the call of his Father in establishing his earthly kingdom. He's knee-deep, as I mentioned last week, in the Galilean ministry, which is the greatest ministry period of his life. Jesus Christ is going around and he's ministering to people. As we stopped last week in Matthew chapter 4, at the very last few verses there, the Bible says Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and kinds of diseases among us. And then Matthew adds this. He says... Jesus' fame went all throughout Syria. They brought him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes follow him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now again, it's important for us to keep this in mind. Matthew does not go in chronological order. Matthew, the last verse of chapter 4, does not automatically, the events that take place as you go into Matthew chapter 5. Several things took place, and as I tried to every single week fill in the blanks for you, I'd seek to do that so uh, at this point. After this event, Jesus Christ continues to go around, and he's performing miracles. He's healing the lepers. He's healing, and he's forgiving the paralytic, a man that was lowered through the ceiling, as you all remember that. He calls more disciples. In fact, he calls Levi and Matthew. He's continuing to advance the kingdom of God. He is, he is turning the law upside down. Now, I heard a preacher once say this, and it's, it's not true. It's not accurate that Jesus broke the law for love. That is false. Jesus did not break the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. But in the process of all of this, the Pharisees took the law and made that God, not God himself. And so Jesus, when he calls Matthew being the epitome of somebody that they hated, a tax collector, I know we don't like the IRS, but it was a lot worse back then. 
They were looked at as being thieves. Anyway, we won't say that about the RS here. Uh, but anyway, uh, they, they did not like Matthew. Jesus Christ goes in during this particular gap here. He eats dinner with Matthew, and the Jews were furious with Jesus. Who is he breaking this mold? Who is he doing the outside of the tradition that we have established that we say is gospel but isn't? It's just a tradition that we've established. Who is this man? Beyond that, Jesus Christ goes through a period of time as he goes into the synagogues and begins to teach, as he always does. But there's three different things that took place, and they're known as the Sabbath controversies that Jesus did. The first one, Jesus Christ, uh, he welcomes all these different people and he heals this lame man uh, by commanding the lame man to pick up his bed and walk. And the Jews were frustrated and furious about that because, again, it's considered work on the Sabbath. But he shows grace to this man and he heals them. The second one's interesting because as they were making their way on the Sabbath day to the synagogue, the disciples that were with Jesus were hungry. I mean, we're all hungry after church on a Sunday. And so it was actually customary within the law to, to, to actually take the grain that was growing along the side of the field and pick that even though it wasn't yours and consume that. That was part of the law. You were able to do so. And so the Jews were not upset about that action. They were upset about the fact that they picked the grain, they crumbled it in their hand, and they ate it. They said that that act of crumbling grain in their hand was considered work, and therefore they broke the Sabbath. And Jesus sets the record straight. In other words, in Jesus' way, he says, y'all are ridiculous. This is not breaking the Sabbath. This is eating. This is perfectly fine. And then there's a third controversy that took place. And that is Jesus healing the withered man's hand. Now, the scriptures describe it this way. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue, and he sees this man who comes in. And the Bible doesn't necessarily say why he came in, but I'm assuming he comes in just like anybody would come into church, and that's to worship, to see some kind of hope. Jesus stops what he's doing. He sets everyone else aside and he goes over to that man and he heals that man's withered hand. Once again, demonstrating grace. And again, the Jews are furious. Now I say all that to say this, at this point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ has attracted a tremendously large following, but not all of them really want Jesus. Some of them want to kill Jesus. They want to, they hate Jesus. And so therefore you've got the scoffers that are in the midst of all of this. And so we see, as we come into Matthew, we see Jesus recruiting the disciples. He takes the time to do that. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus preaches this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it gets to the point right here where Luke describes it more than what Matthew does. Jesus Christ goes into the multitude of people, the Bible says, and they've gathered together to be healed. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly how large a multitude is, but Jewish tradition tells us that a multitude means 10,000 people. Now, Jesus Christ goes and he heals all of those people. He breaks away from the crowd and he goes to the side of the mountain and he sits down and then he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And that Sermon on the Mount is a continuation of this message, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Now, just like a lot of the things that we deal with today, right? We deal with, uh, we share the gospel with somebody and people have like 18,000 different views of what truly is the gospel and what isn't. The same thing happens with the Sermon on the Mount. Because of different interpretations, people take the Sermon on the Mount as meaning one thing because it's out of context. Some people say, these are great moral principles that we should follow, and so therefore, let's follow them, and we're going to have a better standing with God, right? That's legalism. We can't gain a better standing with God if we follow a certain set of principles. Other people say, well, these are good 
moral principles that we should maybe teach morals on and they build a philosophy around it. And so that's all they are is just moral principles rather than the word of God. So the question is this, how are we supposed to interpret this wonderful, audacious sermon? There's a gentleman by the name of Mark Moore, and he gives us several different guidelines, and I'm going to give you four of them when it comes to interpreting this. First off, we have to keep this in mind. The Sermon on the Mount is the guidelines for the church. The church. And what I mean by that is not the chapel church, but the church globally, those that are genuine followers of Christ. If I can explain it this way, it is it is principles that God has given us to help us conform us into the image of his son that cannot be followed outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. These principles are for the church, the genuinely saved. Second aspect regarding the Sermon on the Mount is that these principles are heavenly principles that intersect with our relationships here on earth. They are principles that are in heaven, that are established in heaven, but they're given to the church so that we as a church body can show the world how heaven is how it acts and how it truly is. And so when we love people beyond ourselves, as the Sermon on the Mount tells us, when we forgive people uh, beyond what we can, as a human being in our own strength, forgive, as the Sermon on the Mount tells us, when we trust in God with this incredible faith, as the Sermon on the Mount tells us, they are heavenly principles that are empowered by the Holy Spirit for us to be able to obey that intersect here with earthly relationships. The second guideline, or the third guideline, is that these principles are designed for heart transformation. I've shared this example before, just illustration before, but I had the opportunity as a youth pastor, uh, to be a youth pastor, to, to minister to teenagers for about six years. And I grew up in a conservative, very conservative church, and I'm not upset about that at all, but there were certain things in which they had established that I didn't necessarily agree with, but because I was underneath the leadership, I'm going to follow through with it. But the purpose of these rules, ultimately, if you look at the grand scheme of everything, was to conform people into the image of Christ, right? The teenagers. And I said, teens, don't obey these rules just because we tell you to. I'm not concerned with you conforming to these rules, but for you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the power of God's word. And so when Jesus delivers these awesome principles in the word of God in the Sermon on the Mount, he is not looking for us to follow these To say, okay, I checked the box. This is how I ought to forgive somebody. I checked the boxes. Now God's going to love me more. That's legalism. These these principles are given to us for heart transformation. That's what Jesus desires. So we approach it from that standpoint. And finally, the principles are literal commands and not suggestions. We are going to approach things that I do not want to talk about necessarily within this sermon. My wife and I have had one tremendous discussion when it comes to the whole divorce, remarriage aspect with what Jesus says, and I am not looking forward to that one, but this is what God's word tells us to do, right? And so when it comes to, like, what are these principles? They're not meant to be watered down. They're meant to be followed through the word of God. And so when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of times our tendency is to pick and choose the certain ones that make us feel good, but overlook the other hard aspects. We have to take it as a whole. And so as we continue to approach this wonderful, wonderful sermon, we are going to do so with boldness and grace as God unleashes these truths in our hearts. So we've talked about this word multiple times, and that is this word kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, Matthew loves that word. Matthew uses the word kingdom 52 times throughout his gospel, but within this sermon alone, he uses that word kingdom a total of eight times. Now you're going to see in Scripture kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. 
And just to kind of lay out the, the, the groundwork here, they both mean the same thing. Matter of fact, Matthew is really the only one that talks about uh, the kingdom of heaven. But if you were to compare that between the other gospels, you're going to see that both mean the same exact thing. But the question is this, what exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, first off, the kingdom of God is God's kingship and rule. It is the realm that God rules. You say, well, God is the ruler of all. Absolutely, he 100% is the ruler of all. But there are those that God does not rule their hearts yet. We are praying for their salvation. But the kingdom of God is, is, is the overall rule of God's reign. That is God's rule. Second aspect of this is that the kingdom of heaven is spiritual. It's not physical. John says in John chapter 18, verse 36, actually Jesus says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Paul states in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not something tangible that we can touch and that we can see. It is spiritual in nature. However, here's the third aspect. The kingdom of God is hard for people to be able to comprehend and see because it's spiritual. So God in his great grace has manifested his kingdom through you and through me and so the way as a genuine christian the way we act the way we respond the way we behave the way we interact with other people the way we show love to those that are outside these doors that is the kingdom of god on display and so what jesus is giving here if we can wrap all of this up the kingdom of god is the realm of god's rule it is spiritual in nature it manifests itself through the genuine body of believers as a church and when we do those things and operate in this way we are manifesting the kingdom of god now when it comes to the sermon on the mount with all of that in the background here we approach this text as this as citizens in the kingdom of god and what we are learning from the Sermon on the Mount is how we ought to behave as citizens within the kingdom of God. The law was designed to condemn man by revealing to man his inability to keep the law. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. He gives this sermon and says, by my grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can obey these things, but I'm going to give you grace in order for you to be able to do so. So the proper context for the Sermon on the Mount and how we approach this beautiful ser this sermon is kingdom principles for kingdom living. Kingdom principles for kingdom living. Now here's the second aspect of that, and that is the setting. The setting. There's the context. Here's the setting. Now, Matthew begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. He says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now just prior to this moment, Jesus had officially commissioned his 12 disciples. He's got all of them here now. Now, by this point in his ministry, Jesus had attracted quite the following. I started doing some more research uh, behind this, and Luke gives us some further insight of what takes place before he commissions his 12. And I want us to see this here. In Luke chapter 12, verses uh, 12 through 16, it says this. Now, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued there all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zealot, Judas, the son of James. And I'm going to pause there for a moment here, and I want you to look at that last phrase. Who else was a part of that? Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now think about this for a moment. Have you ever been so burdened and so desperate for something that you spent all night in prayer or at least a great deal of time in prayer? You prayed and you prayed and you prayed and finally you felt as if God was leading you to do something. He gave you the direction. You followed God. 
Have you ever in that moment thought and looked back and said, God, like, I followed you. Why does it seem like this is all falling apart? Think about it here with Jesus. Jesus went out and he prayed all night long, God, give me wisdom to be able to discern who you want me to invest my life in. And who does God give him? Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Now, if we were on the outside looking at that, it would seem as if two things. Number one, God is no longer in control because God made a mistake and gave him Judas and Judas kind of slipped through the cracks. Now, for us to say that is completely blasphemous because that's not the case. Or the other thing is that God set him up. God set him up. You ever felt like you've been set up by God? God, I'm following you, but my life is like in shambles right now. Well, if you were to look at it, of course, we know uh, on the other side of, of, of what happened with Jesus, we know that this was all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. We see this in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 7 through 10. It says, And they consulted together and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled, was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. What's he talking about here? He's talking about where they were going to bury Judas Iscariot that killed himself over the grief that he had and what he did to Jesus. I do not believe that we will see Judas Iscariot in heaven. I do not believe that that was a sign of repentance towards the end of his life when he decided to kill himself at the end for what he did to Jesus. But what you see here is Matthew referring back to Jeremiah, whom Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapters 19, verses 6 through 8, uh, really laying out the picture of what will take place with Judas Iscariot. And so going back to the bigger picture here, what you see with Jesus is Jesus spending all night in prayer. God, give me the guidance, give me the strength, give me the wisdom to choose whom you want me to choose. And out of that, we see Judas Iscariot. We can assume and think that God made a mistake, that God set Jesus up. But in all reality, Judas Iscariot was part of God's plan of redemption, and it also was a fulfillment of prophecy. So here Jesus is recruiting all of his disciples, and he goes about and he heals people, and he's laying all these different miracles out for the people, and they're believing one by one. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, that Jesus came down with them, stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. But look at this last phrase here. The Bible says the whole multitude, again, going back to that term multitude, which we believe maybe about 10,000 people or more, we don't know for sure, but it's a lot of people. A whole multitude sought to touch him for the power went out from him and healed them. This is the event that took place just before the Sermon on the Mount. So as you put all the scriptures together, Jesus Christ heals all of them. He breaks away from the crowd, and the Bible says he goes to the hillside, whom we know is the Mount of Beatitudes, and he's, the Bible says that Jesus sits down. Now, you should, I never want to ever paint, like, give us any indication that we need to draw something from scriptures that's not there. Like, as far as truth, don't ever try to conclude all the truth that's not there. But I do believe in some instances we have a little bit of, if I can use the term, artistic license to try to imagine the scene that's taking place. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but we also know that Jesus was human being, right? He was also God, but human being. He suffered like we did. He, um, he never sinned, but he was hungry like we were. He needed rest like we do. He experienced what we experience. Now, those of you that were here, especially at 8.30 in the morning, you're going to go home today and you're going to probably take a nap 
Even if you didn't want to, you'll probably fall asleep on the couch. My wife and I, the most tired that we are all week is Sunday afternoons because you go there and you're pouring your life into other people, right? You're investing and you're setting up. If you were to go back to the image here, Jesus Christ heals a multitude of people, all of them. They go and touch Jesus. The Bible says the power went out of him to heal them. Jesus is God, but I'm assuming that that had some sort of physical effect upon Jesus. Jesus goes and he sits down and he is tired. But I also think that something else may be going through the mind of Jesus. His ministry is in full swing. He's got this multitude of people whom he realizes that in just a short period of time, majority of them will have walked away. Jesus knows that they aren't there for Jesus. They're there for what he has to offer. So I can imagine that going through his mind, Jesus knows that he has to make a line of distinction between those that are fans and those that are followers. And so all of these things that he's experiencing in his mind, he sits down and now he's delighted to deliver the message. And all of that gives us the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, we have to look at the audience. This Sermon on the Mount was not preached to thousands of people. The greatest sermon that was ever given was given to a small group of people. Now, I have great respect for the ministry of Billy Graham. Of course, just like with anyone, he did some things that we don't necessarily agree with as far as invitations. We can get into that debate, but his message was solid. If you've ever heard him preach, his message was solid. Now, what I love about Billy Graham is that they would hold these huge crusades and never charge the gospel. It burns me up when Churches and all these things, right? You have a seminar and you charge people for it. It's their business, but if you're just preaching the gospel, don't ever charge anyone for it. It's gospel's free, right? Why are we going to charge somebody to come and present what God gives us free? So he never charged, and he packed out thousands upon thousands of people within these stadiums, and he preached, and God did a great work. And he was a great preacher. But here, the greatest sermon that was ever preached was Jesus sitting down with his disciples. In a small, intimate aspect, I guarantee you that if you were to look a little bit beyond the 12 that may have been there, it might have been the smaller group of disciples, that our church here this morning was probably bigger than the crowd that was gathered around for the greatest sermon ever preached. So the disciples gathered together. The Bible says at the end of uh, verse 1 into verse 2, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, that act of sitting down was not only rest for Jesus, it was a motion for his disciples that the sermon was about to begin. It was what the rabbis did. I'm going to sit down, class begins. It's like you're in a lecture, those of you that are college students, the professor walks in, all the goofing around stops, and the professor walks. It's time for the class to start. But Bruce writes in his book, he's a commentator, he says, the training of the 12 that was the audience, Matthew's entire gospel is discipleship training. The crowds were gathered, they were tagging along, but Jesus was always training the 12 who were marked for leadership within the kingdom. And throughout the gospels, what we see are three different circles of followers with Jesus. And this brings us great comfort because the son of God himself had a very small group of people at the end of his life, right? Three different circles, you had the 12. Modern psychologists say that a person is limited to 12 truly significant relationships at a time, and only a maximum of three of these at most can go the deepest level of intimacy. This is a psychologist, not a Christian person that was looking at the life of Jesus, but even the Son of God recognized that. He had the 12, and then he had his three, right? Who were his three? Peter, James, and John. 
the one that he really poured his life into. The second circle that uh, encountered with Jesus was this group that were sometimes called the disciples, but they were the ones that were genuine followers of Christ. They were bigger than the 12. Matthew 5.1 may allude to that group being present. It may not just be the 12. It may be that little bigger circle, which are genuine followers, but that's who was, was present. And then the final circle was the crowd. That was the people that were just there for the benefits that Jesus offered rather than Jesus himself. But Jesus Christ sits down and he delivers this message of, of faith, this message of challenge to these 12 disciples in this intimate setting. And now these kingdom principles have been spread all throughout the rest of the world for us to be able to follow. So as we close out, and it's kind of a unique message this morning is providing the, the framework of what we're going to be talking about over the next several months. I, I want to wrap it all up with this. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the world. It's not for a certain uh, group of, of people within the world. It is for Christians. It is for those within the kingdom of God. And the subject matter behind the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom principles for kingdom living. It wasn't shouted. It wasn't social media blasted. It was Jesus Christ sitting intimately with his followers and delivering these truths that I am absolutely thrilled to jump into beginning next week.